chapter 11. As we continue this study through the life of David, we come to the most infamous moment in the life of David. And I want to begin tonight, actually not in 2 Samuel chapter 11, I want to begin with this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. See, when it comes to temptation, I think we often assume that escaping from it is harder than it actually is. And I think that is why God included 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 in our Bibles. You're familiar with this passage more than likely, where it says, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Now, there this verse reveals two important truths about temptation. First, it reveals that there is a limit to how much temptation God will allow us to endure. Paul specifically said God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. The second important truth is that this verse reveals every sin is ultimately avoidable or resistible. If temptation is the gateway to sin, as James chapter 1 implies, and if God provides the way of escape from every temptation, then every sin is in fact avoidable. Now we don't always communicate that. We don't always say it that way. Oftentimes you'll hear, hear preachers and people leading us in prayer say, Lord, forgive us because we sin every day almost as if it's a concession that, it's, that you just can't avoid it, you can't resist it, you can't prevent it. But this verse tells us the opposite is true. Now, while Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, indicating that everyone at some point in their lifetime is going to sin, is going to fail, this verse is telling us that it's possible to overcome temptation's every time if we find the way of escape. It doesn't say you and I are going to be perfect. It says we have the opportunity to avoid sin because God provides the way out. That's the message I want to uh, stick with you tonight because we're engaging in a study of the, the most infamous temptation sin in the life of David. And I want you to think for a moment. David Simba with Bathsheba is the second most popular event in the life of David. With the first being what? Goliath. And oftentimes when we think about his sin with Bathsheba, we forget that David thus far in his career has done a great job of navigating temptation and avoiding sin. That's not to say he's sinless up to this point in his life. I'm just saying he has found the way of escape on numerous occasions. So think back to that occasion. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, David is in the recesses of a cave, and Saul comes in to use the bathroom. David moves forward in the darkness of the cave without Saul knowing he's there. And it seems that he at least is pondering the possibility of harming Saul I mean, his, his, his men, his, 
his uh, band of soldiers are encouraging him, saying, the Lord's given him into your hands. You need to go kill him. And, and David is guilt-stricken, conscience-stricken. He, he, he's bothered at the fact that he considered doing something harmful to King Saul, and he settles on simply cutting off a corner of Saul's robe to demonstrate to Saul that he's not out to harm him. But David in that moment is tempted to do something that's wrong, but his conscience gets to him before he does. Or you can think about 1 Samuel chapter 25. David is wronged by Nabal, and he decides to gather 400 of his men, have them put on their swords, and go to Nabal's house with the intent of killing Nabal and every male in the house before daybreak. But he's intercepted by Nabal's wife, Abigail, who in her wisdom and her kindness and her, her humility quenches David's anger, and David tells her that you have kept me from sin today. David found a way of escape with his conscience when he was in the cave. He found a way of escape with, an, uh, with, a, uh, with a mediator intervening on his behalf in 1 Samuel 25 with the Nabal incident. See, David has experienced temptation. David has had the opportunity to sin prior to Bathsheba. But he's found God's way of escape on some of these occasions prior to this. Now, I'm not claiming David is sinless at this point. Let me reiterate that. I'm just saying David, in the text of Scripture, has been very successful up to this point at finding his escape route. But it's here in this episode of Bathsheba that David is going to ignore multiple escape routes. And I want to start tonight by focusing on that because it speaks well to our own predicaments when it comes to temptation and sin. So the first thing I want you to notice as we uh, investigate David's sin with Bathsheba is I, I want you to pay attention to the very first escape route David has. It doesn't actually appear in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You have to go back to chapter 5 to observe it. 2 Samuel chapter 5, we read these words about David. And David, verse 10, David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And then if you jump down to verse 12, we're told that David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Here's what we learn from this passage. We learn that God made David very successful. And David began to realize that David was very successful. And, of course, in that realization, it seems that something started to go to David's head. That opportunity for power, that opportunity for pursuit of anything he wants seems to have caught up to him because it, what ultimately ends up happening is over time, David decides, eh, it's okay for me to amass a harem. See, we, we really only ever think about Solomon as this guy with many wives and many concubines, but David was guilty of it as well. Not to the degree Solomon was by any stretch of the imagination, but prior to this point in Scripture, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 3, David's already got seven wives. 
And now in chapter 5, we're, just, we're not even given a number. Just that he's, got, he's getting more and more wives and concubines on the side. Now here's the problem with that. It seems that David has started to, in the words of Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, think of himself more highly than he ought to think because he's decided to start bending the rules. You see, if you venture back to the book of Deuteronomy, to the 17th chapter, before the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, God acknowledged that the day would come when they would request a king, so he, he gave some specific instructions about what a future king could and could not do. We often overlook this, that God anticipated Israel's desire for a king back in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and said, when you get to the promised land and you ask for a king, here's the rules. And if you look at this passage, particularly if you jump down to verse um, 16, about halfway through what's on the screen, here's the rules. The king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Three things that a future king is not allowed to do according to God's parameters. Don't get more horses. Don't get more wives. Don't get more money. Interesting policy. Why would God care about those three parameters? Why would he put stipulations on those three uh, areas? Well, when it came to a king increasing his wealth, the silver and gold aspect, it seems that God's concerned with kings becoming self-sufficient, with kings developing that mentality that they don't need God, that they, they can do this on their own. And if you think about kings that God dealt with, that God utilized, you see how that comes to be a problem. Think about King Saul. King Saul started to think that he was a big deal unto himself, that he, was that he could be reliant on himself and not on God. That led to his demise. You can even think further down the road, past David, way into the future to King Nebuchadnezzar, a king God uses for his purposes. And one day King Nebuchadnezzar is walking around on the top of his castle looking at his empire and he says, look at this mighty kingdom that I built for myself. Next thing he knows, he's living like a wild animal. This prosperity of King Saul and the prosperity of King Nebuchadnezzar led to their demise because it led to an arrogance regarding self-sufficiency. So it seems God put some stipulations on increasing wealth and upon increasing your military might via the horses so that kings wouldn't become reliant on themselves. But then you have this other statement about increasing the number of wives you have. It seems that God was concerned with their idolatrous influence. An increase in wives and concubines, per, particularly those not of the Israelite faith, would expose the king to other religions and other deities. I mean, that was the fate of Solomon, wasn't it? That was the big problem for King Solomon, that he had all of these wives and all of these concubines, and they convinced him to worship other little g gods. 
And one thing that often gets overlooked is that not all of David's wives were Israelites. Some of his wives were from different nationalities. In fact, it may, we, we don't even know if Bathsheba, who he's going to have an affair with, and then he's eventually going to make his wife, it's not one, her husband is not an Israelite. Uriah is a Hittite. Now, she could still be an Israelite, but I'm not 100% certain, or I, I didn't spend enough time investigating this, but it may be that she's not. That's a different subject matter for a different day. But we know that he has one wife that's a Jezreelitess. We know that he has, uh, oh, I can't remember the, the other one that was on my mind earlier. But that's a concern of God that you're going to start inter, intermarrying with other faiths. And that will affect your relationship with him. So God had these policies way in advance. Now, Last week, we spent time talking about the occasion in which uh, David moved, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, the occasion when David moved the Ark of the Covenant from one town to Jerusalem, and how it didn't go well on the first attempt. And it didn't go well, why? He didn't follow what? He didn't follow the plan. He didn't follow the parameters. He didn't follow the commands of God on how to do it. And now, guess what? He's not following the commands of God. Correct. He, did, he, he followed the pattern of what the Philistines had done with it, but they didn't know the correct way to do it. Here's David. He has Mosaic law. He has the ability to know that these commands exist, but he's ignoring it. And so what we need to take away from this is that David missed an escape route when he ignored God's word. I think that's incredibly important because for every one of us, that's always our first escape route. Our awareness and familiarity with God's word and our application of God's word in our life is our first escape route on every temptation. Sir. So, so let, let's, let's be honest, he's not the first person to have multiple wives. We can trace back to Jacob. Jacob had multiple wives long before Mosaic Law was ever created. So he's not the first person to do that. Um, yeah, many, for us, we hear the term many wives, and, and from, if we were to attack this from a legal standpoint, well, many doesn't mean just one. Many, But the... So I, don't, I, I personally don't know how he would have interpreted that. What I do know is that he's, there's not even a number attached to how many wives he had, like there is with Solomon. We know of seven in 2 Samuel chapter 3, but when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 5, there's not a definitive number stated uh, with the wives and concubines. So he's acquiring more, um, but we can't, here I can give at least an analogy. One of the other laws that he's going to break that God gave prior to there ever being a king was 
Don't number yourself. And David's going to conduct a census later in his life that's going to bring some consequences down on Israel. I think there is a comparison to be made there at the very least that regardless of how David defines many, he knows better. You know, that for me, that's the takeaways. He, he knew better. Whether or not many is more than seven or less than seven or, yeah, I don't know. I think most men today have realized that one is enough. <laughs> that God has figured it out. One's the right number. But for whatever reason, David adds on all these women, and their influence can have a negative impact on him. But Solomon's the epitome of it because of just how many he, I mean, just Solomon takes it to the nth degree. Solomon decides he needs to be uh, extraordinary when it comes to the collection of women. But David is obviously doing that as well. I do not, I, I cannot speak to how he would have exactly interpreted that. I didn't spend time, like, investigating that today, but that's a great question. Uh, how, go ahead. Yes. Yes. David's going to break a lot of commands from Mosaic law in this uh, scenario. And we're going to spell those out in a little while. But notice that he's, the, the chief thing here is he's not being guided by God's word. He's, he's ignoring it to some capacity. Um, and I want you to think about it in terms of our own temptations and our own sin. Anytime we choose to ignore God's word, we're going to end up giving in to a temptation. Our first escape route is our awareness of God's word and our application of God's word. You can't just know it. You have to apply it. I want you to think about Jesus. When Jesus was tempted, the, the three temptations that we specifically know about with his time in the wilderness, how did he combat each one? With God's word. Jesus set the pattern for us. Jesus, who, who uh, has so many connections prophetically to David, is handling his temptation correctly in comparison to the way David handled it. He's combating it with God's word. He's using his first escape route. So you go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus, as he's being tempted to turn the stones into bread to satisfy his physical hunger, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, saying, man shall not live by bread alone. And then in, in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 4, as he's being tempted to jump off the temple and be rescued by angle, a, angles, angels, his, uh, his response is to quote Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then as he's tempted uh, to uh, obtain world dominion by simply bowing down to the devil, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, which says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus demonstrated the usefulness of Scripture. It is always and will always be our first way of escape because it serves as a constant reminder of God's will for us. We must, we must never forget the, that the purpose of God's word is to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train us, as 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says. That means that one's familiarity with God's word 
can in fact prevent him or her from venturing down the road of sin. And so we need to view God's word as our first way of escape. Michael. Yes, that, because by copying it down, that means he's also communicating it in some fashion outside of himself, but to the people. So, uh, and he's preserving it for longevity, for prosperity, for, for progeny and whatnot. So there, there, it is, it is, that's a great observation that um, some of these quotations of Jesus are appearing in close proximity to where other instructions for the king are given. So here we are with the first way of escape. David could have, if he would just have pondered, reflected upon, meditated upon, considered God's word in the moment, he could have escaped this temptation, but he didn't. Ma'am, Deuteronomy 24.5 is the passage Emily just referenced. I'm, I'm trying to get there right now. In regards to uh, a verse that might give light on what is too many. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5, When a man is newly married, he shall go, not go out with the army or be liable for any public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. For that one year, yeah. Maybe so. Maybe. Thank you for sharing. Uh, uh, the argument that Emily is um, referencing here is that since Deuteronomy ch chapter 24 and verse 5, uh, you have the responsibility to one wife for that entire year. There might be speaking to the fact that there is uh, an expectation, at the very least, of just one wife. So, worth considering. Let's move on with our different escape routes that David misses in Remembering 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 in the back of our heads. Because David missed the escape route when he failed, or when he ignored God's word, but he also missed an escape route when he failed to assemble. Let me explain what I mean by looking first at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1. Look at this verse. It says, In the spring of the year, 
the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rubboth, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, there are some details presented in this verse about war and about standard protocol that seem unnecessary to set up this chapter. So they seem like they're given for a very specific reason. Because in this verse, there are two significant details. One, we learn when standard military operations occurred. In the ancient Near East, war typically happened beginning in spring. You see, you go back one chapter. You go back to 2 Samuel chapter 10. And the conflict between the Israelites and the Ammonites begins there. Nahash is the king of Ammon, and he died, and his son Hanun took over. And David, out of kindness, sends some of his men to go and comfort Hanun because of the loss of his dad. David's trying to be a, a, a good politician here. Well, Hanun has some friends who are like, listen, that David guy, he sent his men here to spy on us. They're not here to comfort you. They're here to get the lay of the land. And Hanun listened to his friends. And so he, uh, he did some things to embarrass those guys and send them back to David. And David took offense to that. It's very similar to how Nabal treated David's men back in 1 Samuel 25. And so David goes to war against the Ammonites because of how his men have been treated. The Ammonites hire some Syrian mercenaries to help them. And despite their additional forces, David's military um, uh, is successful. The Ammonites kind of retreat for a while. They flee into the city of Rabbah where they are protected from a continuing onslaught of the Israelites. Meanwhile, the Israelite army turned its attention to those Syrians that were hired. They conquered them, made them their subjects, and then it seems winter set in. And the, the, the conflict with the Ammonites that began in 2 Samuel chapter 10 was postponed until here in verse 1 of chapter 11 when it's springtime. And we know from numerous citations in uh, other ancient Near Eastern texts concerning military campaigns that spring was, in fact, the favorable time of war, as one author said, because of weather conditions, you're not battling the cold, and because of the availability of produce. Your men are in the battlefield, and there will be uh, grain growing, there will be fruits and vegetables growing, and now you have a food source to take care of your men as they are away from home. Also, you will have a, a greater ability to hunt because the animals will be more plentiful. So all that plays a factor. Better weather, better food sources. So you can sustain your military out on the battlefield for in, in long periods of time. In particular, in this case, the Israelites are, are setting a siege against this town. So they're stationed out there trying to starve the people out of the city. So they're going to be there a long time. That's why they're starting in spring. So it's a, a um, protocol to go to war at spring. It's just standard operating procedure. 
The other thing we learn here, not only do we learn when standard military operations occurred, but we learned who participated in standard military operations. Who goes out to the battle? Kings. That statement seems to indicate that the standard practice was for kings to be with their military when they are engaged in battle. And such seems to be the case since this text is contrasting what David is doing with what his army is doing. You see, the text specifically indicates that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. But David remained. Sent versus remained. It's interesting that the text says David sent instead of David went. Because if we go back just two chapters to 2 Samuel chapter 8, which details David's military conquest over many of his enemies, we're twice told that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David didn't go anywhere. David stayed home. So David's decision to remain in Jerusalem is in contrast with how God brought about his success in some previous military campaigns. Now, it has been observed that in a few chapters after this, or after the Bathsheba episode, 2 Samuel chapter 21, there's an incident in which David is engaged in battle with his men against the Philistines, and the text says in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 17, that David grew weary. And he almost got killed, but one of his mighty men came to his rescue. And from that day forward, he was asked by his men not to go to the battlefield because it was, he just wasn't strong enough anymore. But that's 2 Samuel chapter 21. That's 10 chapters away. If, if 2 Samuel is fairly chronological, that request of his men to not enter the battlefield anymore hasn't taken place yet. So it seems that the intentionality of the author of 2 Samuel chapter 11 is to show that David should have been with his military if he did things the way they normally are done. That's his second escape route. David wasn't where he should be. And because he chose not to be where he should be, he exposed himself to a temptation. He was not assembled, if you will, with his military. And thus, by failing to be where he should have been, David exposed himself to a temptation that he should have never experienced in the first place and thereby missed his second escape route. Now, when you think about that for you and I, how often are we where we shouldn't be when a temptation strikes? How often is it you're where you are where you are or who you are with, that presents the temptation. And I think here is an important message about assembling. Look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can also go to verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, where he says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's important between these two passages is that the interaction of one another, the assembling of one another, the fellowship we have with one another, serves both an offensive and a defensive 
function. Offensively, being together, being among the people of faith, being where we should be, helps promote love and good works. Defensively, being among each other, being around each other, exposing ourselves to one another's encouragement serves a defensive function because it prevents the hardening of our hearts. There is great power in assembling with each other, with being among the soldiers of Christ, if you will. We're helping one another by being among one another. We're helping one another remember what God expects of us and encouraging one another to stand where we need to stand. And for many of us, that might just be the escape route we need when temptation threatens. Because it's a lot harder for me to be tempted when I'm surrounded by people of faith than when I'm not. And so I think we can see here another incident in which David missed an escape route, and it all has to do with him not being where he needed to be. Let's talk about a third escape route he had. And that was simply the ability to flee. So if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, let's look at verse, three, uh, verse 2 and the first half of verse 3. There it says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, let's understand uh, the dynamics here. David has conquered Jerusalem and established his palace there. The old city of David in Jerusalem is built on a slope. And at the, nor uh, the northernmost section of that city, on the highest part of that city, is where the palace of David was constructed. In that arid environment, many people would use their rooftop as an afternoon lounging location because you could get a nice breeze up there on your roof. You've got to think, uh, remember when Elijah, no, or was it Elisha, asked for a room to be prepared for them on the roof? You had that kind of architectural setting here with these residences. We're talking about the king's palace. That's where Nebuchadnezzar was walking around when he was observing uh, uh, Babylon and talking about how great his kingdom is. This was normal for a king to be on the roof of his house. Bathsheba is out there at her house, which is lower than the king's palace. And she's bathing. She's actually engaging in ritual purification because uh, she's purifying herself from her menstrual cycle. Just to be honest, that's what it is. In most circumstances, the bathing facility in a residence would have been in the courtyard of that residence. you got to remember, their houses weren't built like ours. They didn't have four walls around every room. Most houses had an exterior courtyard type setting where they would have their cooking take place, they would have their water available out there, more than likely she's not putting herself in a position to be exposed to the public. It may simply be that because of the positioning of David's palace and the positioning of her house and the, the 
the visual line that he had from his vantage point happened to make her visible to him. I don't think Bathsheba was intentionally doing something seductive. I think David just wasn't averting his eyes when something came along that was appealing. You see, I think David's flaw here is he's walking around on the roof of his house. He sees something that's tempting. And instead of going somewhere else to get away from the temptation, he spent time enjoying what he was looking at. David responds to seeing Bathsheba by pursuing her. The text says he sent and inquired about her after seeing her in this compromised situation. That means David did not turn away upon seeing Bathsheba. He did not turn away in embarrassment for having observed something indecent. He did not ignore what he saw out of an effort to maintain purity of heart. That means David transitioned from a state of observation to a state of attraction. He looked at her with lustful, impure intent and then chose to act on it. He committed adultery in his heart before he ever committed physical adultery. If he had just fled that roof, if he had just followed in the footsteps of Joseph and gotten out of that environment, he would have escaped the temptation. And I think that's significant because when it comes to sexual temptation, the most common instruction for us is to flee. It's very interesting to me because when we think about fighting against temptation, oftentimes we'll resort to thinking about the armor of God. We'll think about, hey, if we put on all these pieces of armor, helmet of salvation, pick up the, the sword of the Spirit and the shield of truth, and we'll have the breastplate of righteousness, oh, we can fight off every temptation. And yet what Scripture says is, when it comes to sexual temptation, don't stand and fight, run! That's your best strategy. Run! And David doesn't employ that strategy. He doesn't get out of that environment, and he stands there and allows the temptation to take hold. Fight or flight. That's the phrase coined in 1915 to describe an animal's response to threat. And Scripture says the best strategy to avoid especially sexual temptation is always flight. David could have fled the scene, and that would have been his third escape route. But the escape route that gets me the most is the fourth one. It picks up in the third verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it has to do with David listening. Picking up in that third verse, we're told that, and one said, after David sent, asked to expressed his desire to inquire about Bathsheba, one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And then we're told she returned to her house. Here's what stands out to me. David sees her, and then asks about her, and someone tells him who she is. 
but did you notice how this unnamed individual framed his answer regarding who Bathsheba is? He points out to David that Bathsheba is someone's daughter and that Bathsheba is someone's wife. In my opinion, he's trying to trigger David's conscience. This unnamed individual knows the path David is going down and is trying to define Bathsheba in terms that would make David feel guilty. What's interesting is David knows better, not just because of God's word, but David knows better because one of his wives is a woman named Abigail, a woman who had a husband, but David did not pursue until after her husband was gone. And David knows better because he knows Eliam and he knows Uriah. Eliam is the son of Ahithophel, one of David's most respected advisors, according to 2 Samuel chapter 15 and chapter 16. So this is the granddaughter of one of his advisors. David knows Uriah. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 39 identifies Uriah as one of David's 30 men, one of his mighty men, one of his most trusted soldiers. David knows Uriah. David knows this woman's father, and David knows this woman's husband personally. She is not some random stranger. So when this unnamed individual said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliim, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He's not just trying to trigger David's conscience that this is someone's daughter and this is someone's wife. He's trying to trigger David's conscience by saying, this is your mighty man's wife. This is your uh, advisor's granddaughter. He's trying to put this woman in perspective of his intimate relationships with the people she's connected to. This unnamed individual who more than likely was one of David's servants, is doing everything he can to give David an escape route. One of the ways God may try to help us be spiritually successful in the face of temptation is by bringing people into our lives who can correct us from venturing down the wrong path. That servant is trying to do this, but let's be honest. How much can a servant do when communicating with a king. A servant can't correct, a servant can't order, a servant can't dictate, a servant can only remind. But God instructs us to be people who can hold one another accountable. So you come to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. These instructions indicate that if we see that one of our brothers or sisters is erring, then we have a responsibility to help correct them. And though this text specifically addresses an instance in which someone has committed a sin, I believe it can also be applied to any point in the process that James mentions in James chapter 1, 
of the sin process. That includes temptation, enticement, desire, and sin. And the reason I believe it applies to any point in that process is because the new t- in the New Testament we come across several corrective scenarios that appear at different points along the temptation to sin continuum. In Acts chapter 8, Peter corrected Simon the sorcerer when his greedy heart caused him to try and purchase the ability to lay hands on people and impart the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila corrected Apollos when his teaching was based on limited knowledge of John's baptism and thereby prevented him from potentially teaching false or at least inaccurate doctrine. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul corrected Peter when he hypo, when he hypo, hypocritically stopped fellowshipping with Gentile Christians in Antioch as soon as a group of Jewish Christians showed up in Jerusalem. And the point is that sometimes our escape route is through the corrective efforts of people who see us going down the wrong road. And I believe that's why David's son Solomon, a child he eventually bore with Bathsheba, David's son Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 33, Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Because, trust, because instruction from a trusted, accountable, spirit-minded friend may just be your last way of escape. David had four opportunities to avoid sinning here, and he ignored every last one of them. God gave him multiple escape routes, and David didn't take a one. The aftermath of that, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David tries to cover it up. David arranges for Uriah, her husband, to return from the battlefield, to give him the opportunity to go be intimate with her. Uriah refuses that opportunity because his fellow soldiers aren't getting that opportunity, and he's, he's one with them. He does not, in, 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 in his relationship with the military, in his relationship with his fellow soldiers, he does not want to, to receive a benefit they don't. In fact, to some degree, that's David's fault. When David was a military commander under Saul, it appears that he may have required soldiers to keep themselves in a state of ritual purity which meant refraining from sexual contact. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 5, there's a reference to that. And so if Uriah had an intimate evening with Bathsheba, he would have rendered himself temporarily unfit for military service according to David's own policy, if that was, the, in case, the fact. The fact in his way. Anyway. And then David tries a, a new strategy to get, to get Uriah to go be with his wife. He, he asks Uriah to stay one more night, brings him to his house, feeds him, and gets him drunk. And it's, the implication seems to be that David is trying to get Uriah drunk so that Uriah's ethics and Uriah's wisdom will go out the window, and maybe he'll just go home, and in his state of inebriation be intimate with his wife but that wouldn't even work because Uriah has more character than David at this moment because Uriah is more disciplined than David at this moment and so when David realizes there's nothing he can do to get Uriah to go be intimate with his wife and thereby let everybody think 
her pregnancy is the result of her time spent with Uriah. David sends him off to be murdered. And think about how gross this is. David sends the orders to Joab, ordering the death of Uriah by Uriah's own hand. Uriah is carrying his death warrant to Joab himself. And then they send him up to the fiercest part of the battle and withdraw his help so that he is killed by the Ammonites, the very enemies that David's fighting at this moment. David is trying to cover up, and David's learned from the best. Adam and Eve tried to cover things up. Cain tried to cover his sin up. Moses tried to cover his sin up. David's learned from from some great examples when it comes to covering things up. But David forgot that no matter how much you can cover up from man, you can't cover anything up from God. We'll pick up the rest of that story next week. Let's uh, close with a quick word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, we are thankful for our opportunity to study your word tonight, thankful for um, your word and, and the life of David. Lord, we recognize that we're all sinners. And we're sorry that we have wronged you. We're sorry that we have broken your commands. And Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful that you're on our side when it comes to trying to combat temptation. We're thankful that you do provide us a way of escape. And Lord, it's our prayer tonight that you help us to be more cognizant of those escape routes when they present themselves. And Lord, give us the courage, the willpower to take them when they appear. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.